Mortimer. Episode 10. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. That a family of the Longhorn stature must endure this type of audio shenanigans is indeed an oppressive turn of events. But alas, I must listen on and on to ensure that our stockholders are not harmed in this episode of Mortimer. John Adams Iscariot III settled down at his desk to go through a stack of papers that had been left there the night before by his meddling secretary, Miss Peach. He flipped to the first page and was filled with rage as he noted the name at the top of the important shipping contract that was to be going out later that month to the Orient Tea Market. Another contract in which he, John Adams, had helped brilliantly negotiate in all the glory of a true tradesman. But that rotund, good-for-nothing, lazy man-child, Mortimer's name was plastered all over the documentation that legally immortalized John's hard work. John glowered at the lovely cursive atop the contract of the Centennial Shipping Line letterhead. It read, President and CEO, Mortimer Escariot. John felt steam building in his head as his eyes fell upon the teeny-tiny lettering below Mortimer's name. It read, Temporary Manager, John Adams Iscariot. This was another daily insult he could not bear. Yet here it was, in bold black ink at the top of every single contract that came across his desk. The idiot, bulbous name of his even more ridiculous good-for-nothing nephew covered every page with condescension that drove John to the brink of insanity. Yet it was in the last will and testament of the business agreement of his late brother Gerard Iscariot that John was only to be an assistant to the shipping company. An assistant. The title was a disgrace. A nasty oversight, to be sure. An oversight that unfortunately had not been rectified before Gerard had decided to go off and die. John grit his teeth as he forced himself to sign the document, as usual, with malice the ink bleeding onto the page. Disgrace or not, the contract was worth a mint. He forced himself to turn to the next page and was reminded again that the letterhead was being used on the title pages as well as every single other page. This was too much to take. He shoved the stack away and pushed himself up from the heavy mahogany desk, looking out of the window to the wide city. The occasional drink or an accidental run into an opium den down 50th Street was no longer enough to distract his thoughts from the injustice of his petty existence. But what else was he supposed to do? How else was he to get his mind off that grotesque beach whale of a boy whose unibrow rivaled several German leaders from the Great World War? He must have his name at the top of the centennial letterhead. 
He had basically run the company since its infancy, and it was time for him to inherit thousands and thousands of dollars in gold and shipping contracts. These were rightfully his. At present, Mortimer had only showed up at the office once, and that was because he'd been lured in by the promise from his nanny for more glass bottles to add to his collection of garbage. The entire situation was abominably unfair. And then Wolfenstein had the nerve to insist they maintain the guise that the entire company was still being run by an Iscariot, the young Mr. Mortimer Iscariot, specifically. The board had determined it all to be kept a secret, too, for if anyone from the public found out that someone other than Mortimer Iscariot was running the company, it would ruin them. All of the trustees would likely cash in their stock, and the Centennial Line would be sold to the Longhorns. John would have nothing, no job, no pension, and no hope for taking over the enterprise. So, he had not disclosed the secret. But he had sent the contract to Mortimer. He'd crafted it so that it looked like a letter from the Bottle Boat Club. That way Mortimer was sure to read it, and he'd enclosed several pages of nonsense, and then the contract on the last page with the signature line highlighted in yellow. His hope was that Mortimer would not pay any attention to the content, and just sign and return the document. He felt an unpleasant burning in his chest, so he took a white tab from his pocket and popped it into his mouth. Yes, he had borne his cross thus far, but his crucifixion would soon be averted. He may be the assistant manager of operations now, but soon, soon, he would be the president. Either by a signed contract, manipulation of the certificate, should it be found, or there were the backup plans he had brilliantly crafted. One of the plans was sure to succeed, and then he and Anderson could boot the board to the curb and run the entire show. He felt a gurgle low in his stomach as the pills started to take effect. He went back to his desk and grabbed the newspaper. He checked his watch. Quite on time. Several moments later, John settled down on the cool porcelain seat, felt his body relax. There was little he loved more than an afternoon break, alone in the bathroom. No Miss Peach interrupting, no contracts, memos, phone calls, and no one bothering him. He opened the newspaper and began to peruse the comics. The shriek-like groan sounded like a cow in heat. It projected from the other side of the stall and resonated throughout the blue-tiled bathroom. John shifted his eyes anxiously to the left, his sanctuary of serenity being demolished by the horrific sound of an elephant giving birth. He leaned away from the wall between him and the source of the groan, expecting the sound to be followed by the thud of a body crashing into the wall that separated him from the individual on the other side. Come on, hurry up! He willed the peristalsis to go a bit more quickly. Seems like the piping doesn't work as well as you get older, came the voice from the other side of the stall. John's stomach clenched with horror, immediately identifying the person in the stall beside him. I've tried pills, but the old lady says it makes it stink even more. Permeates the house, she says, the voice went on. Well, after a while, <laughs> it's nice to have a little company in here. Having had enough, John abandoned his post. With trembling hands, he ripped off a handful of squares of toilet paper, wiped and leapt up. As he pulled the stall door open, there was another massive groan, followed by one of the most disgusting series of spurts, splashes and splattering his ears had ever witnessed. 
Because he was so horrified, John did not even bother with washing his hands. Instead, he thrust the door to the bathroom open and burst into the hallway. He let out a gasp of air and put his hands on his knees as he finally indulged in a breath. He hadn't wanted to take any risks after what he heard coming out of that person's behind. The whole idea of smelling someone else's feces gave John the willies. He had zero desire to have anything to do with his own stool, let alone to breathe in the particulates of someone else's. Did you just run a marathon in the bathroom? A voice asked. John angled his head and saw a lovely pair of legs in high heels next to him. He slowly righted himself and tried to play it cool. Oh, hey, <laughs> I didn't see you there. The blonde was not impressed. She handed him a letter. Now, this came in the mail for you today from South Carolina. South Carolina? John tried to smile, but only one side of his lip turned up, making him look like a certifiable idiot. The blonde narrowed her eyes. Oh, and you have something on your hand. She turned on a heel, her hair flowing behind her as she went in the direction she had come. John looked at his right hand and cursed violently as he shook the long white tail of toilet paper off of him. In resignation, John hurried back to his office. Once safely settled in his office, John tore open the envelope. The letter inside was printed on very heavy paper with an ivory matte finish. The writing was in fine calligraphy and read as follows. The Iscariot family requests your presence at the coming out party of Mortimer Iscariot for the purpose of introducing Mortimer to society as an eligible bachelor. Saturday, the 12th of June, at four o'clock in the afternoon. Located at the Iscariot Manor, Georgetown, S.C. What in the... John cried out as Mrs. Peach entered his office. She tilted her head down and looked over the bridge of her glasses. Are you making speeches again? Call Anderson, I need him this moment. John turned away from Mrs. Peach and looked with shock at the letter in his hands. Anderson is in a meeting. What meeting, damn it? Mrs. Peach sighed. It was fairly routine for John to forget about board meetings. Between his presidential addresses, dilly-dallying and the overall wasting of time, it was not surprising that duties associated with his employment often slipped his mind. It's starting any minute. Things were held up by Mr. Wolfenstein. John had already pushed past her and was halfway to the board meeting room, the letter still clutched in his right hand. He pushed the doors to the conference room open and said a silent prayer of thanks upon seeing some of the men still milling about, pouring coffee and finding their seats. John straightened his jacket and walked to his chair next to where Anderson sat. While he moved, he refused to make eye contact with Wolfenstein, who looked a little peaked at the end of the table. He would never look at that man the same again. He was absolutely horrified. He now knew things about Wolfenstein that would make a baby cry, things that he would never be able to unknow. Hey, John! Anderson smiled when John flopped into the chair next to him. Boy, do I have news for you, John murmured. I'd like to get started, if you can all return to your seats now, announced the man sitting to Wolfenstein's right. As secretary, I will be leading the proceedings today. Since when did the secretary run the show? John glowered down the table at the moron with the black-framed glasses. It appears that we have a quorum, the man went on. He made a note and looked up. Do I have a motion to open the meeting? What is this? John said aloud. Anderson shot him a look. I'll make a motion, Anderson announced before turning to John. You got the memo, he hissed. Why are you being an ass? 
I'll second it, said another. Affable grunts of assent resounded around the table, many of the men stopping to give John a confused look. John pouted. You all have the minutes in front of you? Old Four Eyes turned to the first pages of his packet. What memo? John elbowed Anderson with a whisper. We all got a memo that we're formalizing the board meeting process. I don't have time to read a bunch of useless memos, John said self-righteously. Anderson kicked him. Today, we'll be discussing the cargo ship to Europe, the Esquire relieving for Cuba, and the Longhorn ship to Africa, financials for the quarter, and we'll be interviewing Mr. Iscariot today in regards to his position at the company. Mr. Iscariot! Wolfenstein peered across the boardroom table at John. Where's your nephew? Now, I left him a message. He assured me that he would be here, John lied. A message? Or did you speak to him? A message. Both. I spoke with him. Both of them. John lied further as he pulled at his bow tie. Very good, the old codger nodded before turning his attention to the end of the table. Captain Clark will be sailing to Cuba, Captain Wilcox to Africa. Relieved to have Wolfenstein's attention directed away from him, John tilted his head in feigned curiosity as the show-off from the board meeting a week ago described his solution to the captain's fight between the Centennial and Longhorn trips. They were amicable, of course, and the conflict resolved. The crews for both ships have been selected, trained, and the cargo is being boarded today. Are we on deadline? Yes, both ships will be leaving at dawn Sunday morning. Wolfenstein nodded in approval, looked at his watch. What about the shipment from Texas? There was a delay on the rail. Uh, what have we done to get the cargo to dock on time? John elbowed Anderson, slid him the invitation. Check this out, he whispered. Anderson accepted the letter stealthily and opened it on his lap. He had a terrible poker face, and his eyes all but popped out of his head, and he started choking. "'Swallowed his gum,' John informed the now-concerned room. John slapped Anderson on the back. "'Drink this,' he ordered as the meeting refocused. Anderson continued to sputter quietly as he drank the water. "'Seems that there was some argument between the distributor and the delivery,' the man went on. Anderson feigned taking notes and instead scribbled a message to John in almost unintelligible hand. "'What the hell does come out mean?' John read the question and shrugged. Anderson took the note and added, Are we invited? He angled it back at John. John sighed, knowing that Anderson was asking in hopes of seeing Ellie. He picked up his own pen and wrote in the top right-hand corner of his paper, Later. John! John! Are you paying attention? It was Wolfenstein again. Your nephew's quite late. We only have twenty more minutes before we have to adjourn the meeting. John tried to look surprised, as though he'd just been let down again. I dare say that my dear nephew is, is, is not among the most reliable of the family. But what do we do if he doesn't come? A board member asked. Well, it says to me, John piped in, that Mortimer may not be committed to the board. This was something I had secretly feared. We do not want to invite speculation without the gentleman present to defend himself. "'Mr. Wolfenstein said in Mortimer's defense. "'You're sure he knew about today's meeting?' "'John nodded. "'I told him myself. "'He was doing such a stellar job lying "'that he was even starting to believe himself. "'Perhaps Mr. Mortimer is not committed to running the company,' "'a man from the end of the table suggested. 
John wanted to kiss him. Or else something came up that prevented him from joining us, another countered. I don't know Mr. Iscariot personally, but if he's anything like his father, he'd be here if he could. Mortimer is nothing like his father, John wanted to scream. Instead, he held his breath, waiting to see how the conversation would play out. I agree, said another. John glowed at the idiot across the table. But as far as I can remember, he's only been to the city once since Mr. Iscariot died. "'Another informed the table. "'We all must also recall that the young man did just lose his father. "'This is why I've been running the company as president in the interim.' "'Mr. Wolfenstein tried to rein in the gallery. "'John couldn't help himself. "'But the company must come first. "'There are thousands upon thousands who depend on what we do.' "'The four-eyed secretary looked surprised. "'Well, he, he does have a good point. "'I find myself wondering about his dedication to the company. "'I mean... To miss such an important meeting uh, is most unusual. Anderson shook his head. Of course he's dedicated to the company. He's an Iscariot. I've even heard he wears a captain's hat wherever he goes. John shot Anderson a menacing look. He wears a captain's hat because he thinks he's a captain. John spit back and then more softly, What the hell are we doing? Follow my lead, Anderson whispered. Well, it appears that since Mr. Iscariot is not here to expressly tell us either way, we'll be left not knowing. John proposes that we give Mortimer one more chance. Anderson piped up. John kicked him beneath the chair. Wolfenstein looked down the table with interest. Do you? John felt sweat gathering on the small of his back. Um, yes, yeah, sure, he said stupidly. Uh, what is the proposal? The secretary asked, pen in hand. John shot eye-daggers at Anderson before going on. Well, well, we need a president, and you aren't going to live forever. <laughs> John cleared his throat at his joke and looked awkwardly around the silent room. Um, well, I mean, Gerard had wished Mortimer to take over. But if Mortimer's unable or unwilling to run the company, we need to know. He's not come to help out. He skipped today's meeting. Uh, but in an effort of equanimity, I... John swallowed the lump in his parched throat. I will go down to Georgetown myself and speak with him. If he's willing, I will bring him back myself. Fine. You have one week. If Mortimer abdicates, the company will not pass on to him. Wolfenstein hit the desk with his fist and then turned to the man on his left. Can someone make a motion? Uh, I motion to give Mr. Mortimer Iscariot one week, and if he fails to appear at the next meeting, he will no longer be eligible to inherit the company, the man across from John said. Seconded, added another. All in favour? The room resounded. Aye, yes. Wolfenstein nodded in approval. Parker, update me on the budget. John grinned with triumph. Everything was going according to plan. The crop had come in splendidly. Jeb stood on the edge of the tobacco field and surveyed the miles of green. He had finished his second round of fertilization, and he massaged the tired muscles in the back of his neck. Satisfied, he walked to the hothouse on the edge of the field. Inside, his first yield of fairground tobacco was drying. It was scalding hot inside, but used to the heat, Jeb moved purposely toward the first row of tobacco. It was being held up by two befores, and the leaves, though dried, remained a rich greenish-yellow colour. 
Now, why don't we just give ourselves a little sample? Jeb said aloud to himself, See how some homegrown Binkley Fairground tobacco tastes. He reached up and tore off a chunk of the dried leaf and carried it to the table where he started to break it up. Twisted, zigzagged, pushed, and then gently stuffed into a pipe. The tobacco smelled good, but how did it taste? His pulse picked up as he added some crumbs to the top and took out a match. He puffed once. Puffed again. Mr. Van Sant, another letter for you, sir? The squirrely lad tripped over his feet as he rushed into the editor's office. Slow down, Fisher, or you'll bust the teeth out of your head. Van Zandt chided him from behind his desk. A mound of papers a mile high was hanging above his head today, and this was the third time his intern had interrupted him this hour. Mrs. Carmichael said that this one was important. Then let me have it. Van Zandt reached out for the yellow-stained envelope. Who's it from, Mr. Van Zandt? Ignoring him, Van Zandt tore open the letter. He would know that penmanship anywhere. His hazel eyes quickly scanned the correspondence. Fisher, he looked up. Fetch Armstrong for me, will you? Sure, Mr. Van Zandt, right away. It had been several months since he'd received a letter like this. It was starting to seem like many of his clients were a little... What was it his father used to say? Eccentric. Yeah, another eccentric, he told himself. And he had better take care, because customer service was one of the most important parts of this business. Happy customers equal dollars in his pocket. A moment later, a tall, black-haired man stood in the doorway. He pushed a pair of wide-framed glasses up his nose before crossing his arms. Kid said you wanted to see me. We got a letter. What kind of a letter? Armstrong made no effort to hide his apathy. This one is important, Van Zandt tossed the letter to Armstrong. Write a response and have it on my desk no later than tomorrow evening. What kind of a response do you want? Armstrong asked with an edge of sarcasm. The congratulatory promotion to Captain Six Zero status or the elusive condolences due to another one drowning himself in the delusion that one can become a skipper through reading publications and building boats to shove into bottles? Neither. Van Zandt tossed the letter across his desk. I want the works. The works? Armstrong raised a pair of dark eyebrows. Yeah, and don't be sloppy with it. When am I ever sloppy? You heard me. I want a fugue. Van Zandt pointed at the younger man. Tomorrow, before closing time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Armstrong picked up the letter and headed back to the bullpen. Uh, there were worse ways he could spend an afternoon. Well, at least, worse ways he could spend a Thursday afternoon. Hey! Bobby Sue cried out as she felt a pair of massive hands grope her from behind. Jeb! She whirled around and slapped her husband square across the jaw. You naughty man! Go wash your hands! Come here! No, you don't! She waved the dish towel at him and ran around the counter. What has got into you, Jebediah Binkley? Stop a running and let me kiss you, baby! I'll kiss you once you wash all that manure off your paws. <laughs> Bobby Sue giggled. Suddenly there was a shrieking coming from the front yard. Bobby Sue abandoned her flirtations with her husband and stared out of the open door. What on earth? Someone was running up the road. Get out of my way! It was Percy's voice, but it didn't look like him. Instead, Bobby Sue saw a mud-covered lunatic dressed like an Indian. 
He was wearing nothing but a loincloth at his waist and a headband with a feather on his mud-covered head. Percy burst into the kitchen and shoved past his mother, while whooping war cries and slapping his muddy hand against his open mouth. "'Percy!' Bobby Sue tried to dodge his flailing arms. "'Stop that this instant!' Percy leapt up onto the counter and let out another shriek. "'You much too old for this!' I've been to the jungle. I've defeated the savages. I'm Sauron Eagle. I'm Chocolate Thunder. Then Percy leapt off the counter, leaving a trail of mud all the way as he gallivanted around the kitchen. Cheb, do something. Your boy is out of his mind. Boy, Jeb bellowed. You stop a hollering this instant. I'll defeat you with my bow and arrow. Percy retorted. He wielded his lunch stick like a sword. That's not how you use a bow and arrow, you idiot. Don't call our son an idiot. We do not name call in this family. We're civilized farmers. Bobby Sue chastised her husband. Percy, what's gotten into you? I'm not Percy, Percy cried out. I'm Sauron Chocolate Eagle Thunder. He squatted and leapt into the air like a frog. Oh, he's done lost his mind. Bobby Sue was dismayed. That does it. Jeb tried to grab hold of Percy. All he accomplished, however, was catching Percy's loincloth. Percy shrieked, pulling away. Don't you run around out there, Bobby Sue yelled into the yard. You're naked! She ran after her son and, pulling a sheet off the clothesline in the yard, she chased Percy in circles. At that moment, a car pulled up at the end of the drive. Jeb came out of the house to find his wife chasing his delusional whooping and hollering son, and to their left, a man and a woman were marching angrily up the road from the car, recently parked. Is this your son? The woman demanded. Oh, I reckon, yeah, Jeb admitted. He shoved his hands into his pockets as the man next to her anxiously wiped at his balding brow with a spotless white handkerchief. Percy, you stop your running around like that. Come here. Bobby Sue was out of breath. Did you know that your son covered the inside of the school building with... She stopped abruptly, as if what she was about to say made her physically ill. She leaned forward and looked back and forth before uttering the last word softly. Shit! Oh, I know my boy can shit, but no man or boy alive can produce enough to cover the whole inside of a building in one night. And if they could, well, they'd be in the fertilizer business, let me tell you, Jeb argued. Oh, my God! The woman looked like she was going to rip her hair out of her head. I had enough of you country bumpkins. I'm going back to the city. Caldwell, this is your problem now. She stormed back to the car. <laughs> oh, well, she always says that. Mr. Caldwell laughed awkwardly as the teacher slammed the door to the front seat of the car. Um, hello, Mr. Binkley. Mr. Caldwell held out a sweaty hand, which Jeb accepted and shook. I'm Ellen Caldwell, the superintendent of the district. Jeb Binkley. Caldwell looked at his hand after the shake and saw that it was soiled. He wiped it off with his own sweat. Well, um, what Miss Hartman says is true, I'm afraid, the older man said. Your son had detention today. Detention? Jeb asked. He looked over his shoulder and saw that his wife had somehow miraculously trapped the greased and soiled pig that currently was their son, Percy. 
She had Percy wrapped up like a burrito in a sheet and was sitting on him. "'You don't say!' Jeb looked back at the gentleman. Yeah, "'Well, she says that he was being insubordinate in class and was instructed to clean the inside of the schoolroom.' Well, she came back to check on him just fifteen minutes ago and, and found the entire room in disarray. Well, how do you know it was my boy? Caldwell tilted his head. Well, look at him for yourself. That! Jeb jerked his thumb back to where his son was flailing under his mother's weight. Well, that's just mud. That isn't mud, sir. Jeb looked over his shoulder again and considered. Well, if that is shit... How are you going to prove that my boy covered the school with all that by himself? Caldwell shook his head and wiped at his brow. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Binkley, but we're going to have to expel your son from school. Now, you wait a minute. Jeb took a step toward the smaller man. You telling me that my boy is not allowed to come to school no more? Caldwell swallowed. He nodded nervously. Yes. How about we just go over there and see if that ain't just a little bit of mud first, before we jump to conclusions? Cadwell twisted the handkerchief in his hands. Well, I suppose that's fair. Jeb turned and crossed the yard, Cadwell following in tow. Jeb leaned down and took a sniff. Well? Cadwell asked aloud. Boy, this fella here says that you covered the school in shit. My name is... Percy was interrupted by his mother bouncing down on his abdomen. Ugh! Now you tell your father the truth, Bobby Sue demanded. Did you do it? Of course I did, Percy confessed. She deserved it. She was being a... Ugh! Percy groaned again as his mother thumped down on him. I'm sorry, Mr. Binkley, but your son is officially expelled. Before Jeb could protest, the smaller man turned on his heel and walked briskly to his vehicle. Jeb crossed his arms and glared at his son as the sound of the car engine broke the silence. They heard it crunching on the gravel of their drive, and moments later the car disappeared back down in the direction from which it had come. Percy, what are we going to do with you? Bobby Sue sighed, her anger melting into weariness. Percy didn't mind it when his mama was angry but the look she gave him now told him that she was disappointed. And that was the worst. Percy liked to let loose, to pretend he was someone else, to show the world that he didn't give a lick. But one thing trumped all of that, and it was his parents being disappointed in him. He hated that. He scrunched his face into his most remorseful expression. I'm sorry, Mar. Bobby Sue reached up and allowed Jeb to help her stand. Ah! <sighs> I just don't understand why you'd do such a thing. She humiliated me. Jeb ignored his son's protests. Bobby, baby, get the hose. Once his wife had scurried over to the garden, Jeb shook his head at his son. Ah, oh, I'm downright disappointed in you, boy. You were supposed to be acting like a man, like the son of a tobacco farmer. I'm sorry, Pa. I thought you'd be proud of me. You told me that I shouldn't ever start a fight, but that I damn well better finish them. Yeah, but I meant fight like a man, Jeb growled. His wife approached them. The hose was kinked in her hand to prevent the water from coming out. Today, you fought like a barbarian. Jeb stepped back. Hose him off, Bobby. 
Yeah! Percy squealed as the water struck him. Teach you to behave like an idiot. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.